Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalim Podcast. This week we've seen a number of new developments from manufacturers that could have a huge impact in what our smartphones are capable of when it comes to photography. But what do all these announcements actually mean once you get past the tech specs and sensor details? Mike Lowe from Pocalint joins me to break it down for us. Meanwhile, I've been talking to UK country manager at Ionity, a provider of high power charging networks for electric vehicles across Europe, about the future of charging our electric cars on the go once we've all got one. And Pocalint's Dan Grabham joins us to talk about how he's getting on with the new Echo Show 10. Is it great or is the screen that follows you around your room just too creepy? Keep listening to find out. So back to you, Mike. Tell us more. So, yeah, cam- it's all about cameras within your phone, basically. Um, mm-hmm. This week, there was uh, a proper announcement from Samsung. Uh, they're developing a new camera sensor called the GN2. Um, and there's also a bit of rumor about uh, Huawei's P50, which is believed to feature a sensor from Sony called the IMX800, but that's currently just a bit of a rumor, so it's not known. But when you just speak all those numbers and letters it doesn't really mean a great deal that's the thing so i suppose it's worth looking just briefly back at what what cameras and phones have done over the years because they kind of came from a point of not being too much of a feature and then technology has advanced over time sensors have done a lot of different things and principle among those really has been um the physical size of them so the, one of the key things to Samsung sensor, and this is a follow-up to the one they put in the uh, S21 Ultra, which was then the GN1, um, it's basically big. <laughs> so the bigger a sensor is, the bigger, in theory, the pixels can be on it. And when they're large, they've just got better light-gathering properties in effect. So that can give you better image quality. And the bigger and bigger you get with these sensors, the closer in effect they are to the kind of sensors you used to having dedicated cameras. And this is effectively why that market has kind of collapsed entirely. You don't really get pocket uh, cameras anymore because they're on your phone already. And as this gets better and better, you've got something pretty much comparable. Um, and and phones are doing this really, really well at the moment. And so is this where it's, over the last couple of years, some manufacturers have you know they seem to peak out at about 12 megapixels and say like the iphone is is happy with that they've done then go down the sort of software route and try and enhance those and stuff other manufacturers decided that that was 12 megapixels seemed like such a low number that it wasn't worth bothering with so they kind of we started seeing you know 50 megapixels and all the other stuff didn't we and it was it just got bigger and bigger is the next stage now that we've kind of take it you know we've got through that whole megapixel like big number count is it that now it's going back to the sensors and saying well if we can make them bigger then that's going to make a much bigger impact than just having 100 megapixels or 200 megapixels uh it's it's a bit of a game really because as ever these numbers kind of sell so we haven't really seen a decline in the megapixel numbers at all 
Um, if anything, it's kind of coming back. So even pretty budget phones, you've got 48 megapixel, 64. There's quite a lot with 108 now as well. Um, but actually the way they're using those is quite different. So let's say you've got a 64 megapixel camera. Uh, you can pretty much guarantee the output of that is going to be 12 megapixels because what it does, it combines four different pixels on the sensor, uses mm. that information four times over. And by doing that, it can like expand the dynamic range. It gives it more comparison points to enhance the detail. Um, so in a way, you're getting these big numbers, but the results you actually get are much smaller. But even so, 12 megapixels is still massive. Like You think about a 4K telly. It's, that's like two and a half 4K tellies. So, Which is huge. Yeah, we don't really need it from phones. Um, so, yeah, the megapixel thing is one aspect of how processing is kind of improving the way those pixels are being used. The physical size is the other because, as I say, you can uh, enlarge those uh, pixels themselves in effect. But obviously this comes with a limit because the bigger a sensor gets, the more space you're going to need for it. And that isn't just in terms of a footprint. To actually get a lens that will cover that sensor you can need more kind of projection from the phone as well, as in it's going to get fatter or have a bigger camera lump. Um, and I think right. we've kind of reached the point now where it's quite normal. You know, phone cameras have these big camera bumps and people are quite used to it. So I think it, a couple of years back, it wouldn't have been okay to put a massive sensor in a phone because it would have had this crazy big lump on, on the side of it. And now that just seems to be quite normalized and people are okay because the results you can get from them uh, as I say, just keep improving. Now, talking on to the Sony uh, rumors. So this is talking about a one-inch sensor that could power the Huawei 50, uh, P50 Pro. What's the? There seems to be quite a bit of excitement on the internet about this one-inch element to that that sensor rumor. Why is that the like sort of exciting part of that story? Because it's big. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really quite large, actually. Um, so. The terminology of the way these sensors are described is a bit of an oddity because it doesn't mean that there's any measurement that is an inch. Um, I can't remember the exact measurements of it, but um, right. it's something on the lines of kind of 13 by 10 mil-ish, something around that, which sounds quite small. But actually, when you when you compare that, say, to a traditional crop sensor DSLR, it's about a quarter of the size. So you kind of imagine a phone that you can have in the palm of your hand that's like, what, less than a centimeter thick compared to a big old camera. And I'm not saying the results are going to be identical or comparable, but there was a point even just a couple of years ago where you'd be paying sort of £600 plus. Well, I think one of, didn't the, one of the old Canon G3, I think, had a, from, it's quite a long time ago, it's like five years ago now, but I think that had a one-inch sensor on it, which, you know, yeah. kind of, and the, the, the G range and, and Canon has always, always been seen as that like, well, it's, it's that perfect camera if you can't get a DSLR in your pocket. Yeah, it, it, it sort of, the one inch basically replaced the smaller stuff to, that used to be out there, like the one over 2.5, one over 1.8, um, because that bigger size has made things better. But now we're going to get them in phones. That's kind of, you know, it's pretty crazy. It's, it's going to take things, again, it's going to put it back to the camera market and say, hey, we can do this over here. Do you really need a dedicated camera? So it's really kind of pressuring that market and it just shows like what can, can be done in theory, assuming it can be implemented in a, in a sensible way in a phone without it becoming huge but i guess and i suppose that's the big barrier isn't it is that real real cameras so to speak have 
they don't have a size issue they don't have size limitations and therefore you've got lots of glass and lots of lenses to make you know to get that light in as best as you can to that big sensor yeah do you think that's going to be the problem that we'll see on on smartphones is that you know it's just it's the, the space for a lens um yeah on a proper camera i say proper camera you know what i mean um yeah you you want it to be of a certain size because you want to be able to hold it in a certain way you want different lenses you know that give you that kind of flexibility on a phone i think you just want something a bit simpler but having a big sensor means you can you know crop into it if there's enough megapixels so you can get a kind of digital zoom um there's there's quite a lot of versatility that's available from it um because the other thing that's been happening over recent years as well is you know optical zoom uh, lenses or periscope zoom lenses have appeared a lot more in, in cameras and they seem to have kind of stopped where they are about three times or five times maximum uh, the, the interest and the use case of these are perhaps less than than people may have originally thought or they're not seeing themselves using them quite as much um, so maybe that's kind of a dividing line as well if you want to spend on a proper camera you can get some decent zoom uh, whereas in a phone you can still do some pretty good zoom but uh, mm. that's all down to, to kind of the components of, of what makes it up and given the right combination um, that Sony sensor with the right sensor, uh, sorry, with the right lens on it, you know, you should get some pretty decent quality and capabilities. Still to come, Dan gives us his verdict on the Echo Show 10. There's a, a sort of squat speaker it sits on, and then the, yeah, the screen actually follows your, your movement. With Boris Johnson's ambitious plans to ban petrol and cars from 2030, as well as recent announcements the government were providing... 532 million for consumer incentives for ultra low emission vehicles the move to electric is gathering pace but as we embrace electric vehicles over petrol there are plenty of questions we still need to address like how we're going to charge them on the road and what's happening about putting in place the right infrastructure to make that a reality Pierre Brett Schneider Ionity's country manager for UK and Ireland is the lady responsible for answering some of those questions I started by asking you to explain what Ionity is trying to achieve Mm. So um, what we do is we try to enable the transition to electric mobility. And we do this by uh, installing and operating high-power chargers. Um, so these are 350 kilowatt chargers. And we mainly operate them on motorway services, uh, also on the A-road networks to enable um, people really to travel um, everywhere with their electric vehicles. Um, and also, uh, you know, the customer experience, we want it to be easy and seamless uh, for the customer to use the chargers. And also they're powered by 100% green energy as well. Okay, so I presume this is not something you just rock up with a big box and plug it into a three pin plug and off you go. And that's, it's all very groovy and easy. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about making that infrastructure co to connect everything? Um, well, we we have um, so so what we what we do is essentially we we then find find sites we make agreements with the site um, owners or the operators. Uh, we have a construction company then that you know builds the stations for us, um, and then it's all connected. All the chargers are connected to our our back end, so we can always monitor the what's going on at the charging stations to make sure that everything is um, working as it should. And um, then from a customer perspective, um, you know, we, we offer the um, uh, display, the chargers on, on Google Maps, for example, 
uh, also in various apps, also in the in-car navigation systems of the cars, uh, so that people can find the chargers easily. Um, and then when they, once they come to the charging stations, they can either use, if they have a contract with a mobility service provider, they can use the RFID card uh, for the payment, or they can also use the um, sort of the pay-as-you-go or ad hoc facility, like we call that, so they don't have any any contract. Mm. Um, and they can use that. There's a, there's an, there's an app um, and there's a mobile uh, payment website as well for customers who use that. So, nice. it's, so it's all meant to be be um, easy from the customer's perspective. Um, and of course, I think that's one of the key key things really for 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 people for for EV drivers is 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 finding the stations easily and knowing where they are and also uh, having the authorization and the payment process work work. Yeah, it seems it seems that a lot of a lot of EV drivers are, are still slightly concerned about range anxiety and the idea that you go out and you can't you know you run out of charge. When do you think we'll get to a position where? that goes away in the sense of not necessarily that we've got cars that deliver longer range, but that there is a point where charging your electric car is at a charging station is the same as finding a petrol station, for example, mm. in the UK. Yeah. Um, I, I was actually, I was looking at some research um, just this morning um, just to see how consumer perception has, has already changed. And what I noted is that a few years ago, really the top consumer concern um, for for switching to electric was the range of the car and that was followed by the cost of the car and mm. then the newer research from 2020 it actually showed that the lack of charging infrastructure was the key concern and the mm. range of anxiety was was the second on second place um, so it's still there but but I think people now they have uh, realized that well the cars are coming to the market um, they are able to drive longer distances there's also cars uh, also in in um, more affordable um, you know pricing of the vehicles has also um, changed and, and there's more models to choose from so I think on the car side of things people are are getting a bit more relaxed but but I think the <clears throat> the lack of charging infrastructure that has popped up as the key concern now and um, as to when when that will um, when that will be as easy and and convenient as as uh, coming to a petrol filling station um, that I think that's an interesting question of course the UK government aims to um, uh, prohibit the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030 and I think there's a, a big task ahead of us uh, to get ready for that for that target date. Um, but I think at the same time, the <clears throat> what the challenge in the past also has been has been that, you know, you have had some uh, charging points installed, usually just one or two. You usually don't yeah. see big hubs of them. Um, and then, of course, if that one charging station or that one charger is is broken, doesn't work, then uh, you know, then you get a very negative image of EV, uh, EV charging, EV driving, and <clears throat> I think one thing what we're trying to do is we're always trying to um, install hubs. So we install at this stage um, four to six chargers at every location, just to you know give the customer convenience, uh, well both convenience when they come there, that they don't have to queue, but also confidence, you know, in case one charger would be broken, they'd still have a number of other chargers that they could use. So I think 
um, that's one way that we can uh, give the customer confidence that charging um, charging is there's nothing to, to, to fear about uh, when they come to a charging station and there will be enough of chargers available when they come there. Yeah, now one of the, you know, if you look at it, Tesla is kind of seen as perhaps the poster child of the EV movement, certainly in the UK and and and, and the US and even some of Europe. Do you, they obviously come with their own sort of Tesla charging stations where there's, you know, banks of chargers. Do you, do you think that's helped or hindered this perception of charging for the industry? Um, I think I think Tesla have have got it right, as you say. It's a proprietary system, so it's only available for Teslas. But I think part of the Tesla success story has been related to the charging, um, supercharging, especially. Um, so I think that has has really helped. Um, I think Tesla drivers generally are quite quite happy, um, ha- have happy with the EV and with the experience uh, because they go to this uh, Tesla super hub and there's a lot of chargers there and they don't. Oftentimes, at least, they don't have to stand in line, and it's all very, very easy and convenient. Mm. And uh, so, I think that has helped. Um, of course, it's it's a closed system just for the Teslas. Um, so, what we need to do is is um, also have the infrastructure in place for the um, the so called CCS uh, vehicles, which is the European standard, so that yeah. it's an open network and anyone, all brands of cars, can use the chargers. Because I think the big when we're, you know, getting from the around about 6.6% um, <clears throat> battery electric vehicle registrations in 2020 and close to 100% in 2030, most of that will be coming from uh, non-Tesla cars, just yeah. because the other yeah. car car manufacturers are, are bringing the, the models. So, so we need we need these uh, these hubs also that are then publicly available and accessible to all brands. And do you see something like something like that hub system as something that I honestly would kind of work towards in that sort of, you know, instead of your SO petrol station or your Shell petrol station or what have you, you kind of have charging hubs where there's banks of, you know, 10 or 15 of these chargers where you can, you know, know that you're going to go and drive. And, and I suppose in addition to that, then the speed of charging will probably get better over time as well so that you're not you know, spending a long time at the charging stations themselves. Yes, exactly. So, so we have uh, we've now initially started with four to six chargers at every location, which is which is um, in most markets it's it's enough. We have some mm. countries where we're seeing that uh, on occasions that, uh, like in Norway, for example, uh, that people do have to wait. Um, but but typically that's that's enough, and then of course we're responsive to the to the de- level of demand, so we can then expand once once there's more demand. Um, and in the UK specifically, so um, we are most of our stations that we have currently in the UK, they are on the motorway um, on motorway network or motorway services or on the petrol filling station um, at the motorway services. And also, um, we have also space um, space to expand on those those locations. Um, and but of course, yeah, there, there are some locations where, like the traditional fuel filling stations, typically are uh, limited in space. Um, they have you know tanks underneath the ground. Mm. Um, so so I think space on some locations will be will be a challenge. Um, so, so we do tend to look for bigger, uh, bigger locations where we can not only install our initial, um, initial 
um, configuration of four to six chargers, but also have space in the future as well to expand because I think that's that's going to be um, be, be needed in the future years. And do you see that as, as something you talk about, you know, petrol stations there? Do you, do you see that as something that by 2030 we might see that petrol stations have become charging stations instead of, you know, fuel stations, so to speak? I, I do think that that's what's happening. We, we can already now see with um, the BP, uh, BP acquiring Chargemaster some years ago and um, also Shell have also a program of the Shell Recharge. So they're putting also chargers already, high power chargers already in, in today. Um, but I do think that the, in the future, you know, it might not anymore be a matter of having a, a traditional petrol filling station with one or two chargers, but, you know, it might be completely electric um, in the future. I do see see that um, happening. But I think right now it's still probably too early um, because just because the market penetration of EVs isn't quite there yet. And so do you think that by 2030 we'll be ready do you think we'll have enough charging infrastructure that that won't be top of people's concerns to match the amount of cars that we're all you know we'll all be driving i do think so um i I think what what's really critical there is not just the pure number of chargers but it's really finding the right type of charger for the right location um so I think that's what's what's key is also making it in a making them um the optimal the most efficient infrastructure um so that could be for example in in in, a, in an urban area that could be you know having a filling station like hub for evs where people come they charge they go so you can have a lot of volume a lot of throughput right. uh, because you have very powerful chargers so you can serve a lot of cars um or the on the other other side you could have um have something that's very slow that's uh, uh, relating to where people are parking overnight, for example, and providing more opportunities for people and residents to charge overnight. So so, so I think there are different uh, ways of, of providing that infrastructure, but um, you know, we need to consider what is the, the most efficient way and the most cost-effective cost way, because obviously like for, for a hub, like what we're doing, <clears throat> um, you know, we need space and space, of course, is always a valuable resource, especially in, in urban centers and, and the power supply uh, that we need also from the from the grid is also quite high. So that's um, two, two challenges that we're, we're tackling. Yeah. Since the original Echo Show appeared in 2017, the landscape for in-home smart screens has changed significantly. Google's Nest Hub series and Facebook Portal have arrived, while Amazon has introduced the smaller Echo Show 8 and the Echo Show 5 to sit beneath the 2018 Echo Show, which is the newer Echo Show 10 now replaces. A bit confusing, I understand. While the Nest Hub series, in particular the Nest Hub Max, is the most natural rival for the Echo Show lineup, 2020 threw a curveball into the mix. We're all using and making video calls a lot more and so these devices need to work out their scenario and how they fit within the home so does the new echo show which has a follow mode which i alluded to at the beginning in the intro that's always focused on you the best fit for the bill well dan has been using that product for using the echo show for the last uh, couple of weeks and is here to tell us more hello yes i mean the the new echo show 10 uh has this sort of slightly bizarre action in that the actual screen moves to follow you around the room. Okay. So 
there's a a sort of squat speaker it sits on and then the yeah the screen actually follows your your movement it's not it's not doing facial recognition or anything um quite that advanced but it is watching for a person and the direction they're moving essentially um which means that it can be quite quirky in how it moves and reacts to you i mean it it does it's not just if you're i don't know watching a prime video uh, stream or uh, making a video call that it follows you it also follows you around if you're um listening to something on spotify or um just just making a, a general alexa command so it's it's a it, it's certainly an interesting device um and, right. Uh, this this makes. I have lots of questions. Oh yeah, um, I'm sure you do. Yeah, I'm sure you do. The first one you're... is the first one is a sensible one, which is why. <laughs> but perhaps the more interesting thing is, I want to know when you were testing it, did you kind of like hide behind your kitchen counter and your island and things like that to see whether I could just imagine you just moving ever so slowly and it going, it's following me. It's following. It's following. Yeah, and it, it, it sort of it can speed up if you you know you move quite quickly. Um, <laughs> yes, you can you can fool it. You can fool it. It's not it, it's not that bad. And the, the 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 way I found that I was actually fooling it wasn't intentional. Was that I was going out of the room and the the device was on the counter quite close to the door, and so it would swing round and follow me out of the room. But then when I came back into the room. Um, it wasn't quick enough to sort of follow me until I then issued another Alexa command. There's a, a, um, a, there's sort of a, you can, you can adjust the the zone of movement um, and it will um, allow for any obstacles or anything like that. And so, but but why? Like, is it, does it help? Is it useful? It is useful for, especially for video calls, because obviously this device is designed for a family room or a kitchen it's not really, you know, designed to be in a study, you know, where you're sat at a desk right. or in, in, in the bedroom where you're using it as an alarm clock and speaker or whatever. You know, it's, it's designed for where you're doing other stuff with your hands, like cooking, obviously. And um, and so you're make, if you're making a making a video call, you're not actually so you might be moving around the room doing other things, basically. So there, there's definite merit there, and it, it's sort of a, a um, another take on the idea that was introduced with Facebook Portal that 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 camera sort of pans, even though the device there is stationary, the camera pans and tilts, at, 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 you know, and zooms, pans and zooms rather, um, to actually zo- zone in on your face, um, and this device will do that as well. Okay, so. Beyond the tracking and, and the, whether you find that really helpful or, or or not, is it a really good device that you should think about getting anyway? It is. It is a really good um, smart home device. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's there is there is still a, a bit of a fundamental issue around um, echoes with screens because Echo with Alexa on a smart speaker is brilliant. You know, it can it you know it's at that stage now where it it can recognize most commands and the sort of i don't understand that um scenario isn't just isn't as regular anymore you know they right. they've actually got to a, a pretty advanced stage um but the experience on screen is a bit um it's still a bit half house you know um uh this can call skype um other skype devices or numbers or whatever um and also it can call other other echo devices other echo shows 
but um, they've announced Zoom for the US, but not the UK as yet. Um, although it's still sort of an unknown when that's actually going to arrive. Um, and so it's it's sort of the the actual sort of amount of services isn't any anywhere like if you had say an iPad stood in the kitchen, um, and that's that's still a bit of a problem with smart screens in total. Mm. If, whether you buy this one versus the um, Nest Hub, really that's going to be to do with the service you gem- use generally, uh, whether you use Google Assistant or or Alexa. And so someone, stepping it back ever so slightly, someone that has um, got an Alexa from fairly early on is thinking, right, I'm thinking about upgrading my Alexa. Should they just go for another Alexa speaker or does this really, does this add, you know, A, deliver the same sort of sound capabilities as a regular Alexa, but also that screen really does add something to the mix? Yeah, I mean, it does add it does add to the mix because it, it it's you know for example for if you're asking for the weather, whereas on um, an Alexa speaker device, it will just give you quite a simple rundown. Um, this will give you sort of an outlook for the for the for the coming the rest of the day or um, in or the next few days. You know, you can actually see a bit more detail, and it's it's quite good actually. Um, say asking for your calendar appointments because rather than if you if you're someone with a load of calendar appointments, um, you know Alexa can take quite quite a while to read that. Whereas on the Echo Show, you can simply swipe down through the screen. So the, the you know it does expand on those services, but um, a lot of the skills, the, the the sort of Alexa skills, the sort of add-on third-party skills, just aren't optimized for the screen. Um, and you've got things like YouTube, for example, where there's still no app, which is a bit you know you you can watch prime video and netflix but you you it sort of it doesn't it 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 takes you so far but it doesn't quite give you everything that's it for this week's show thanks for listening until next time pip pip when you make decisions for your company you look for the no brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.